This is your host, Josh Sharp, and welcome to New Hope's Cutting Room Floor Podcast, where we get a chance to talk about what didn't make it into the sermon this week and what our speaker would have liked more time to engage with. We'll also go over some questions that you might have had and generally just have a good time talking about what was on our speaker's mind. Today, we're here with John Rosenstiel to talk about the sermon, Aren't We Better Off Without Christianity? From our current sermon series, 10 Questions, Exploring Barriers to Our Faith. Uh, so, John, how are you doing today, man? Doing great. Yeah, <laughs> doing really good. What's the day been like so far? Um, standard day meetings and taking my daughter to school and mother daughter just got home before I came here and more meetings. Yeah. Working yeah. on the sermon for Sunday. <laughs> the life of a pastor. Are you, are you with uh, talking a little bit about some of that? We, you're working on a sermon, but you're also talking about a previous sermon like that work for you? Like, mm, yeah, it's like I, as most men, I can compartmentalize pretty well. So <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I, I gave the one sermon Sunday that we're going to talk about a little bit and talk about more in depth today and then writing the one for this coming Sunday. So, yeah, sometimes the sermons cross pollinate in my mind. And yeah, I assume <laughs> especially this last one, probably more so Yeah, as totally. we were talking a little bit about things earlier. Um, so for our listeners, John, we're not going to talk much, uh, you, you're not going to give the sermon today, mm. but I do want to give kind of a flyby of what they might've missed. And also if, if you're one of those listeners right now that didn't get a chance, probably just stop where you're at and go listen to the podcast from this, uh, last weekend, uh, new hope PDX and give that a listen first. And that'll make a lot more sense when you get back to this. And so, but for those that did and just need kind of their memories kind of jump-started, uh, John, can you give us a quick flyby on uh, mm. what you preached about this last weekend? I'll do my best. Um, it was a long sermon. And, uh, yeah, I, we're kicking off a series called 10 Questions. And so the way the series is framed is we tried to come up with the 10 questions that serve as barriers to people seeing Jesus and following Jesus. So that could be people who are new to faith or considering faith. It could be people who have grown up in the church and are thinking about bailing or, or deconstructing as a term that's being used now. Um, yeah, so super popular now. Yes. And, and then for people who are following Jesus, they're trying to figure out how to navigate these really important questions. So the first one, um, and we're using a, a book called Confronting Christianity by Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin, which is our big read. So we're encouraging our congregation to read that. The question that Rebecca in her book started with, we, we tightened it a little bit. Her question was, uh, would the world be better off without religion, which is an important question. We tightened it to, would the world be better off without Christianity? So I opened uh, kind of the governing thought process was I asked people to think about an alternate universe where uh, there was no Christianity. There was no Jesus. There was no Jesus followers. What would that world look like? And then the million dollar question is, would that be a better world? And so the, the proposition that I was putting forth and, and seeking to defend and preach on is that Christianity is our best hope for making a world that's gone wrong right again. So I think we have to agree, and I think most atheists would agree with this, and most people of any faith would agree that the world's not right. The world has gone wrong. How, whatever degree you want to talk about it, very few people look out at the world, <laughs> look at their own hearts and say, everything's great. Yeah, yeah, I don't think anyone's being like, we arrived at utopia no, no. So that can be a common ground starting premise as we look at it. So then the question has to be like, well, do we just shrug our shoulders or is there an answer? And I'm, I'm putting forth, we're putting forth as a church that Christianity, the way of Jesus, 
is our best hope for making that world that's gone wrong right again. So I, 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 our, our scripture was Isaiah 58, I can't remember the particular verses, where I'm arguing Isaiah is giving a prophetic vision for how to make a world that's gone wrong right again. And I go in-depth to the context of that passage, what's going on, we don't have time for that. And then I tagged on to that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which I think is being influenced by Isaiah 58, that a, a better-known passage that, as we follow him, were to be the, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So that Jesus is carrying on that vision. The New Testament writers carried on. So th- within the Bible, within the way of Jesus, is a clear and compelling answer to a world gone wrong. I gave a Lego illustration that Legos give us the blueprint and then the resources for building them. And I think the way of Jesus does that. And so I gave a bunch of different stories. I talked about Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity. What might that look like? And I think the early followers of Jesus, while they had their weaknesses and they were messed up, I think they very much got the vision and carried it out. So I talk in depth about his work. Uh, we address the question that I think is the underbelly of this, this larger question is Christians or others who have been hurt by other Christians. Uh, Christians that have been hurt by the church, and that's many, and that deeply grieves me. And we talked about Philip Yancey's journey. Yeah, you had ahead. a great statement on this that yeah. I, I want to make note of, and uh, it just it made me laugh because I also know you well enough. But you were talking about uh, being on the piano, and like mm-hmm. if you went to go play a Mozart piece, mm-hmm. and you specifically, John, went and played the piano, and we judged Mozart based on what you played, sure. that would be in just completely off base. Correct. Yeah, and I think I gave the 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 snarky quip as well that you know you can't judge Mexican food on Taco Bell. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, just yeah. a bad, bad imitation. <laughs> so uh, I get it. I get how people can be really upset when they see people claiming the name of Jesus and saying they follow Jesus and not acting anything like them. I think that's a huge, huge barrier. And we've we've seen a lot of examples. Oh my goodness. I won't dive into all of them. But yeah. Wanna hang your head and cry. And I'm sure I've perpetuated that to be honest. And you have like we're not trying to be holier than thou. Like but the gospel isn't, well, it's for perfect people, right? No, it's for really broken people that are to be made right again. So we're to expect that. And so what Philip Yancey, I, I referenced his memoir, which is really excellent. I think it was in the resource uh, list, uh, Where the Light Fell. Um, he just grew up super fundamentalist, racist, angry, abusive home. And yet here's this man who's written some of those formative Christian books in our lifetime. And in podcast after podcast, he's been asked, why are you still following? Why didn't you bail? And, and he just said, well, you can't judge Jesus on Jesus followers or the church. Look to Jesus. And, and so I really encourage everybody to do that. We try to be Christocentric around here at New Hope. That doesn't solve every problem, but I would say is if you're reconstructing or you're looking anew at Christianity, start with Jesus, end with Jesus. Uh, with that said, really kind of the last thing I'll say about the message is really challenging followers of Jesus. Uh, Rodney Starks, a sociologist who wrote Rise of Christianity, argued they changed the world because they walked the talk. And I challenged our church, we have to walk the talk. The younger generation seeing us, <clears throat> they see the misalignment between what Jesus is saying and what we talk about what Jesus says and then how we live. And there'll always be some of that because we're not, we're imperfect. But um, it will win the day, I think, if we actually begin to follow Jesus and live like Jesus. I think that that, as we, as we live out this plan to make a world gone wrong right again, um, I think it will make the way of Jesus, and these three words will, I'll, I'll talk about them throughout the series, that I believe the way of Jesus and Christianity is at its essence good and beautiful and true. And uh, those are things really up for debate. 
is it? And that's the macro question. That's why a longer message that is such a mammoth question. Is the world better off? But you can listen to the message. I had a, a long bit. Well, I actually read my notes because I wanted to be really precise in what I'd written. And I, I, I don't think so. I think the world will be way worse yeah, without I mean, the wave. You made Jesus. a comparison towards the end of your message about basically what we wouldn't have. And yes. you gave a long list. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, if, if you're just catching it now and didn't catch uh, the sermon, please do. That's, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was very poignant. Okay, so John, as we move through that, and there's some things you talked about in that that I definitely want to talk about as we come back to it, but the big issue and the idea behind this podcast is we talk about also, like you were saying, you have this really big sermon, but I also know you. I know there's stuff on the cutting room floor for you. Um, dude, what was it? Yeah, I mean, there's there was a lot on the cutting room floor. I think, you know, when I was attempting to write the message, I, I could have gone two directions. So the one direction was... Um, to address that question directly, a world without Christianity, let's do that thought process, let's wipe it all away, is it a better world? Which is where I, uh, where I went. The other would, would be uh, really coming from an atheist perspective, right? and that would go back to more of Rebecca's macro question, would a world without religion be better off? Um, so my atheist friends and atheist writers, we mentioned um, a group called the New Atheists that begin to write... Um, a lot of books around 2004. Um, they're really good at asking hard questions and <laughs> making light of, of some of the things that are hard about religion. And we do have hard questions we have to answer. Um, absolutely. Um, but uh, I think they do a very poor job of uh, defending a world without God. Um, and what would that world look like? They also have some very difficult questions to answer. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's what was that whole deal was left on the cutting room floor. I, I touched on it in the end when I was reading those things of what would that world look like. I begin to go into that, but that's not only one sermon; that's many. So I'll, I'll just for, for folks not f- tracking with where I'm going, I'll, I'll try to be precise. I think without God, uh, what would the world look like? Well, I would say that it, it would not look like the world we're living in, and it's not how even atheists live. So, and I got into this a little bit with Tom Holland's book, Dominion. He's the historian who kind of really has come to faith, but he kind of had an aha moment where he's like, our Western world, even our uh, non-religious, even our atheistic or very liberal or very secular world is so saturated with the way of Jesus and Jesus' principles, they don't even see it. They don't even know it. And so um, if we strip those away, we're left with a world that we can't even recognize. So a couple of things that without God, um, I think we're left with a world without purpose or slash meaning. Uh, there's no telos to drive us. There's nothing outside of just raw humanity. Yeah, it seems so painful to me. Um, and a nihilistic in, in the grand scheme. It, it is. Like, I, I think it's ultimately nihilistic. I think that's where... Now, with all these things, I want to be fair to my atheist friends. They write books after books after this. They recognize the, these Achilles heels. They do have answers. I think they're very inadequate. The really honest ones um, will just say that. And I could I could come up with some quotes. They'd depress everybody to hear it, but <laughs> they'll admit it, it, it's nihilistic that, yes, ultimately, there really is no reason why we're here. There's no purpose or meaning. And so everything that we ascribe purpose or meaning to is just, it's just our way of trying to make it through. It's not real. Yeah. Um, and I would say that uh, a world without God, not only purpose and meaning, but uh, beauty, 
right? So if we're just, if it's just, most atheists are naturalist, right? So there's nothing outside of what you can see and touch and measure in the lab. So what makes anything beautiful, right? It's just, it's, you know, this, my dog, I don't know what my dog's thinking, but I doubt my dog is sitting watching a sunset going, oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> my dog's probably like, when's dinner, right? And so humans do that. Humans are like, get moved to tears over music or a book or a movie, right? So where does that come from? Um, if there's no God, um, morality, I think this is it, right? I mean, anybody that's an atheist, if you went and punched them in the face or robbed their house or did some heinous thing that almost any human that's ever existed would say that's wrong. Yeah. Why is it wrong? Right. Who ascribes what it's right or wrong? Yeah. And I've, I've, this is an interesting one. You and I were kicking around this earlier and I've, uh, I remember watching like, I can't remember. It was like something like 30 days. Um, and they would like switch homes and this atheist woman went and lived with a Christian family. I can't remember uh, what the show was titled. Like a um, wife swap or something? It was almost like that, You're but it was before that. You're watching wife swap? That's <laughs> really weird, Josh. So anyway, they uh, they do this, and she brings up, you know, I live morally, and we have morals and stuff. And I'm like, well, that's—and I'm thinking, even back then, I was like, that's great and all, but there's no framework to that. There's nothing that, that stops you from leaving that interpretation— um, the same thing, you know, I, I bring up with hermeneutics and other stuff in my mind is just like, there has to be a framework, there has to be boundaries, or what you're doing is pretty nebulous, and it can move way too much. And, and morality doesn't actually function then, uh, once some of those edges start moving too much. Or it's subjective, right? And so yeah. almost everybody lives with subjective morality, but then what if your subjective reality butts heads with someone else's, yeah. right? Yeah. So there has to be an outside source of that. And most humans would say that's God. And, and then we can get into different versions of God and religions, which we will later in the yeah. series. But I think if you're, again, going back to what I left on the cutting room floor, without God, there's huge gaps. Um, the the Imago Dei, right? What do we, how do we look at a, a human and say that that human life is meaningful? Uh, Pete uh, Singer is a ethicist from Princeton, I believe, and he is a leading atheist. And he's, uh, this is well documented, he said there is more of value to the life of a pig or a chimpanzee than a human baby. And what he's doing is he's, he's actually being faithful to his own way of seeing the world. He's like a chimpanzee is a developed creature, a human baby isn't. So in that scheme, there's nothing different. Uh, another uh, atheist, I, I'm blanking on their name from MIT, um, has said recently that we're all just a combination of atoms. So there's no difference between you, Josh, and a donut. Don't take offense. You know, like he's literally like saying cool this. In fairness to him, he's being consistent. Yeah. And so, but to anybody, that just seems absurd, right? That's not how we operate. That's not how we feel. Um, I would also add, without God, where's hope? Right? We're, I mean, there's just we're back to to, to, to nihilistic worldview. Yeah. And then finally, um, I think. Atheists will often come rightly and ask Christians or other faiths, how do you deal with suffering? And we're going to deal with that uh, later in the series. But, you know, if God's good, why is there suffering and evil? It's called theodicy is the term that, that Christians have to navigate. And there's just schools and schools of books written. Philip Yancey's written a bunch of books on it. There's no easy answers, but we have a pretty compelling one that our God put on flesh and came and suffered himself for us in the midst. Well, what's the answer in atheists? If somebody dies, if somebody goes to the, it's got to be a, a shrug. Now, they wouldn't shrug. I want to be fair, but it's not consistent. So I, yeah. I was talking yeah. to you earlier and kind of told you I, I, because of my heart stuff, I, I eat fake cheese and, um, <laughs> yeah. and fake sausage, right? <laughs> and, um, and, 
it's not real cheese, right? It's not real sausage, no matter how much I want it to be. And I would say in fairness, you know, for an atheist that is leading a moral life or having some kind of purpose or meaning or hope, there's no substance to it. It's not the real thing. It's just something they have to make up to get through. And I'm trying to be fair. And then they have, they have reasonings about like, hey, we're evolved and we evolved with this and all this. There's, there's a lot of stuff written. I don't think it holds up. So yeah, that was what yeah. was left on the cutting room floor. That's actually a whole series, but that's a, that's mammoth topics. So I had to kind of pick one direction, but I think that that absolutely, in fairness, enters into this discussion, right? Because we can look at Christianity on its own merits and, and all the, the warts and the wrinkles and the struggles of it. And I think compellingly say it offers an answer to the way we see things and the brokenness. I don't think atheism or a world without God um, does the same. Yeah. I was thinking about the uh, the question of would a world be better off without religion? So just branching off outside of us as well and going over that a little bit in my mind. And I'm thinking of so many other things outside of what came out of Christian sects and things like that, but even Islamic and some of these other religions— there are some huge things we learned from other religions and what they provided the world with. Um, I, what was it? Al- most of algebra is uh, related to Islamic yeah. uh, in that grouping, um, which is is massive. I mean, there is no way in my mind we'd be better off without just the basic concept. I mean, um, Hitchens, Dawkins, I was going over some of their stuff today. They go over, you know, uh, we wouldn't have these wars. We wouldn't have these fights. And and I felt when I was going through it, a little bit of a straw man argument uh, that they were bringing up with it. And it's it's one of those things where, like we talked about a minute ago with you can't blame Mozart for me not being able to play the piano. And I think we we oftentimes do that when we look at Christianity and be like, no, it's not for us or all religion. Oh, it's not for us. Like, no, there's a lot more to this. There is a bigger discussion and picking on one little part of it is totally missing the entire thing. Yeah, and I also don't think that that's, that's uh, a full answer because we can also go back through history. And, and yes, we, we documented some of it um, on Sunday. There has been violence done in the name of God and this and that. But entire communist countries, right, secular countries, you know, you would, Hitler said he was a Christian, but he had to pretty much reject all of Scripture and Jesus, and actually the Nazi symbol was a distortion of the cross. Yeah, he had to, like, yeah. rip apart the whole thing to, to get to the evil that he did. So the idea that if we move religion, we'll remove violence, I think is just simply false. It's not true, and yeah. we see that historically. And, yeah, I mentioned an op-ed, I think it was in the USA Today, near the end of my message Sunday, that, that I did go back out to that broader question of, you know, is religious un, religion unhealthy or religious people unhealthy? Actually, the world's getting much more religious, and study after study after study after study show that religious people, religious kids in particular, are just healthier. They live longer, you know, we, we talked about that, but, but it goes on and on and on and on. Less crime, longer marriage, on and on and on. So, again, there, there's there, it's... It's beyond just anecdotal, let me tell you a good story, this or that. We took time Sunday to look at the data, and I think there's plenty of data out there. I mentioned Jonathan uh, Haidt. He, he's he's a, so, a, a social psychologist. He's a best-selling author. He writes a lot on this. So, you know, it's, it's not just Christians saying this. Uh, there is a, a health factor to religion. If we strip the world of it, it's also, I think, it becomes a more dangerous world, a more unhealthy world. All right, so John, we're in this uh, 
apologetic-themed series. Um, would you tell us more about what apologetics is and how it can deepen our understanding of our faith? Yeah, I think the, wor- the word apologetics comes from a Greek word, and it just means to um, like speak in defense of something. It's simply just what the word means. Um, so in a Christian circle, if you come from a Christian circle, you, you may have heard that word, word thrown around, and it's it, it kind of have a, as a defensive posture, you know, kind of yeah, like, yeah, yeah. we're under attack, and we got to, like, defend. I, I, I understand there's an aspect to that, um, but I prefer, and I hope the tenor of this series is not a defensiveness, but casting vision for something that I believe is good and beautiful and true. And I think it's mischaricatured, I think it's misrepresented at times, it's not lived out well at all times. And so there's a lot of misconstruing, confusing things. So we're trying to clear that out so that people can see Jesus and see the way of Jesus clearly, what I believe inherently is good and beautiful and true. Uh, we could also go to First Peter, uh, I don't know, 4, maybe 4.15, something like that, where he, he says that we have, to, um, we, we have to come up with reasons and be able to defend the reasons for the hope that is within us. And I think that that verse has been given a lot too. And I think that's compelling. If we follow Jesus, we shouldn't, if somebody asks us, you know, why do you follow Jesus? I don't think we should shrug and like, I don't know. You know I, I think, you know, hopefully thinking people who are feeling people that, that love the Lord and follow Jesus, that there's significant reasons why we're doing it. And I think that's the, that's the heart of apologetics. But my hope is in this series that people don't, he, don't see arms crossed, defensive posture, fearful, angry Christians. I, I don't believe that at all. I, I, the emotion that I showed during the, during the sermon came from my deep love for the church and my desire to see the church be good and beautiful and true. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, the apologetics, again, used under, under that Greek term, has more to do with a logical discussion debate rather than emotional argument. For them, that was the thought process behind that. Yeah, I think that this. I don't know. I don't think that the Eastern mindset or the folks that wrote Scripture would differentiate the way we do and bifurcate between like the mental and the emotional. I think we do that in the Western world. I think my friends from the East and most Christians and the Bible is written from an Eastern perspective. I think it's just assumed to be the same. You know, if you believe something, of course you live it and you do it, and it's infused with you. I think from a Western mindset, that's a good thing to mention. And, and I, for me, I think apologetics is, is, is much more than just the mental gymnastics and figuring things out. I think it's infused in how we live. I quoted uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. It's one of my favorite quotes. Uh, it, it is something effective like, what you are stands under you, uh, over you and thunders so loud that I can't hear what you say to the contrary. <laughs> and so <laughs> I think so many Christians grow up being able to give a verbal defense um, and I think that while that's important, our, uh, verbally telling the story is important, but I think more so, and I would argue in this time period where we're in the minority now and it's post-Christendom, it's how we live. And I think that's what Rodney Starks discovered in The Rise of Christianity. I think that's what's lacking right now. I can't remember who told me this so many years ago, but I threw out this, this uh, equation on Sunday, I think, Oftentimes, we start with the good news and go from there. We just tell people the good news and expect them to be like, oh, my gosh, yes. Lives. Yeah. But I had somebody tell me once, no, in this culture, you have to start with good works that lead to goodwill 
that lead to good news. Not that we earn our salvation through good news. We're already saved, right? We're following Jesus, but we live it out. People see that it's actually making a difference in our marriages and our parenting and how we care for the earth and how we care for one another. And they're like, oh my gosh, you're so different. And that's so good and beautiful and true. Tell me more. Um, So I think that's the kind of apologetics that I think is needed right now. Yes, there'll always be the need for Christian philosophers and thinkers. Absolutely. That's really important. We don't check our brains at the door. We don't check our bodies at the door either. (laughs) So (laughs) the word faith is to be like, it's, you know, uh, one of the great definitions of faith is reason gone courageous. (laughs) And so it's, yes, we we understand it. And now, boom, here we go. We're going to actually live this thing out. I think that's what will be the greatest apologetic. And I think the inverse of that saying something and not living it out is the greatest barrier to faith. I think when people see it, they're like, wait a second. Well, that's what we've constantly heard. In fact, we brought up earlier in this conversation already multiple times. Like that's, that's been a go-to for a lot of atheists ultimately. Yeah. And, Um, and you totally understand. I think it's some of the lowest hanging fruit. If you want to take shots of like, you know, look at how your Christians are misbehaving. And again, we can go back to talk about why that isn't necessarily fair totally understandable. Yeah, yeah. But let's like remove that and get to the other side and like see so many followers of Jesus on their knees in front of King Jesus, living out their lives in sacrificial love, in humility and grace. And people be like, oh my gosh, what is that? Yeah. Yeah. We have a history of, of Christianity doing these great things. Again, you talked about them Sunday and yeah, it'd be great if, if that was our, our flag again, so to speak. Um, now this, this brings up a great point. Um, we're talking about, you know, walking the talk, so to speak. And, uh, one of the things I was thinking as you were talking Sunday was like, you know, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. What are some of the rhythms though, that you try and put in your life to help you (laughs) walk that better? Yeah, I think, um, I think having uh, people call it glass house living. (laughs) And I think it's um, having accountability, having people in my life that see how I live and can ask me any question. Now, any accountability can be just a way to manage your sin, right? Because we can all skirt those accountability relationships (laughs) and stuff like that. It doesn't mean we we don't do it. So I have a spiritual director. I have a counselor. I have a group of really close friends that um, I share my deepest, darkest struggles with and, you know, those kind of things. So I think that, I think trying to live my life out in the open in both how I preach, but how I live, um, you know, I'm sinful. I sin, I make mistakes. I'm going to drop the ball. So uh, giving people an example, what it looks like to follow Jesus isn't sinlessness. That's impossible, but it's, you know, Paul, Paul said in the scriptures, follow me as I follow Christ. Watch how I live and model your life. I mean, well, Paul messed up. We know that he sinned, of course. So he's saying like, watch, even when I sin, how I confess that sin, how I lament of that sin, how I repent, watch the patterns of my life. So I would hope my daughters and my wife and my parents and our staff and the people that go to our church and the people in the community, that what they see is what they get. That's my hope. Um, even in all my rough spots, I would hope, you know, the staff could be like, yep, yeah, we've seen that in it before or whatever. No, um, not that at all. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that that, that word integrity uh, literally means the etymology of it and, and even biblically means um, fitting together. 
And so when we say somebody has a lack of integrity, what we're meaning is um, it doesn't fit what you see on stage or maybe their public persona doesn't match what maybe report might come out or the private. <laughs> we see this all the time. That's what we yeah, mean when we say, well, they're lacking integrity. What yeah. we're saying is what we see isn't what we get, right? It doesn't fit together. So that's one of my deep goals in my life is to be a man of integrity, which is not perfection, but life fits together. So it's accountability, confessing your sin, having good rhythms in my life. I think some other ways that I try to walk the talk is like, caring for my brother and sister pastors in the city. So I spent a good chunk of my time um, taking them out to lunch, loving on them, um, taking them down to Mount Angel Abbey once a month, uh, caring for them, being available for them, because I believe deeply in the church is the hope of the world and the hope for the city. So knowing how hard pastoring is and knowing that people have done that for me and still do that for me, try to do that for others. And then finally, I, I, I challenge everybody in our church to serve, to use your gifts to serve. And I, I realized years ago that I wasn't serving. I mean, I serve in the church, but it's my job. I get paid to do that. So I was like, I got to serve outside the church. If I have moral authority to be asking people to do something, that's another thing. Moral authority means that you're asking people to do stuff you're doing. So yeah, yeah. I, I thought like, man, I have a really limited skill set. So what, what else could I do? Um, but I've had a lot of experience in leadership, um, learning what not to do and making mistakes and things like that. So I, I have served the last, I don't know, five or six years on the board of Open Arms International. So um, hopefully I've helped them and we're helping like thousands of kids in Kenya, uh, you know, taking them off the street from just really dire situations and putting them home where they grow and many of them become followers of Jesus and physically healthy, emotional health. So yeah, I'm not over there physically doing it, but I'm helping shape that and helping lead and hopefully making it better. So those are just a couple of areas where that, that's what I mean, walking the talk. There's many more, Josh, as you can imagine, that, you know, in the dark nights of my soul, that I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to follow Jesus more faithfully in this area. And I'll always be a work in progress. But I think that I try to live that out. I try never to speak a sermon that I'm not taking deeply into my own life. Because yeah. once you start doing that, then that's a downward spiral quickly. Well, you're preaching to others and you're not living it out. So I try to take the, my, the, my own sermons that I'm preaching really, really seriously and try to live out what I'm asking other people to do. Yeah. No, and I getting to know you over the years has been fun through that process. And, and uh, I can definitely attest to, uh, for our listeners, uh, John, you, you definitely try um, and and. Uh, that's part of the reason I enjoy working for you in that grand scheme. Can you tell my wife that, <laughs> how much I try? I get that, and you have to give the same uh, <laughs> same quote. Um, I was thinking, too, uh, some of the framework that I kind of have in my mind um, and that I did in my life uh, regarding this this question. I uh, I came in with some baggage years back, as, as you know, um, and uh, I went and thought about it and I was like, I do need to go get help. Like, I do not want to carry this forward because of what grossness can come out of that. And so I did and I'm, I'm better off for it. But it's really just taking that step uh, for, you know, again, for our listeners and thinking about, well, if you want to walk better, then you might need to, to just yeah, be open about your life, be authentic, go see a counselor, a spiritual director, a therapist, and and work through some of these things that may subconsciously be there for you as well. Um, and that's what I was afraid of in, in my life. Yeah, I think it, I, I am a firm believer that 
I don't think that everybody should be perpetually in counseling, although some people need to be, and, and that's good for them. But I think everybody should have a counselor. I'm a huge fan of spiritual direction. That's a whole other topic. Yeah, yeah. But we got to have people in our life that are that are around us, supporting us, ahead of us, um, to, to be able to see blind spots, to be able to grow, um, to deal with it. Because you said it well, if we're not dealing with the brokenness in our life, we pass on that brokenness to to others. And we, we all, we all know people like that. You may be that person. I've been that person before <laughs> yeah, for yeah. sure. It's and we don't want to perpetuate that, right? We want to, using another Philip Yancey quote, we want to break the chain of ungrace. I love that, right? He just says, we just keep on nation states and humans and family systems. We just keep passing on our junk to the next thing. He goes, at some point, someone has to say enough. And grace is powerful enough through Jesus to be like, I forgive. I'm breaking it. I'm done. And I'm going to get help and I'm going to get well yeah. and I'm not going to pass this on. So yeah, well said. You also just mentioned a little bit about uh, interacting with the churches in our city and, and things like that. Um, and you talked a little bit about in the sermon, are there ways to pray for the city of Portland? Are there things that, you know, you go through on maybe a regular routine and how would you encourage us, uh, me, the listeners to encourage, uh, sorry, to pray for the city? Yeah, I think I want to reaffirm what you said, Josh. I, I I think I showed a little emotion several points on Sunday, um, and I don't want to. I don't I hope nobody felt like judged or looked down upon um, when I uh, when I drive through or up the hill to our church. Right, we see lots of our unhoused yep. neighbors, and we yep. see lots of trash, and we see we see sadness and brokenness, and and we're we're constantly in the conversation. How can we? come alongside of those neighbors and help bring flourishing and shalom. But there's times I'm sure I looked out of the, or, or, or think unkindly and stuff like that. So, uh, and Portland isn't by, I think anybody's measurement in, in it's, uh, you know, pinnacle of health right now. I don't think many places are. Yeah. Um, it's been a rough run. I think what I was responding to, especially as a follower of Jesus, I almost understand the secular mindset. If you're not, if you're irreligious of like, yeah, whatever, like, forget this place, I'm moving to wherever people are moving to, Idaho or Arizona <laughs> or whatever. Texas right now? <laughs> yeah, Texas. I'm out of here. Um, that's the antithesis of what we're called to do, right? And I tried to play that out in the prophetic vision. I, I went to Jeremiah 29, which continues to be a really impactful passage for me, where, where Jeremiah writes a letter to those taken from Babylon, and Babylonians were horrible. Uh, and and they, they ripped away these young men and women, destroyed the city and the temple. And yet Jeremiah, essentially, I mean, you, you'll have to read the, the longer passage, and I read some of it Sunday, but just to kind of come back to point that, because I think it's so powerful. He tells them to marry and have daughters, uh, sons and daughters, find wives for those sons and daughters, right? Like, build families, increase in number, don't decrease. Seek the peace and prosperity to the city that I've carried you to, because if it prospers, you will prosper. And I kind of repeat that line, if Portland prospers, we prosper. Followers of Jesus need to hear that. It is not a time to lean away. It's time to lean in. Yeah, and I remember I, you saying that I Sunday, believe that, that was great. deeply. That doesn't mean that we have to applaud at everything or think it's all great, because much of it's not great. But that doesn't mean we bail, right? We bring kingdom of heaven to earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we roll up our shirt sleeves and we lock arms with our city leaders that we probably disagree with on a lot of things. But we can all agree on some of these key things of cleaning up our city, making it healthy, making it flourishing. Because if it flourishes, we flourish and the gospel flourishes. So I think that that's my, the heart. And so many of my brothers and sister pastors in the city are doing that and feel that way. And I'm deeply encouraged. New Hope's at the table. I'm inviting our church to be part of that. I get how people feel that way. 
but I think there has to be a sea change in our hearts as we see what we're called to be as God's people. So I think your question was, how do you pray? <laughs> um, yeah, 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 I mean, I, I would, <laughs> I increasingly say as led, and I don't mean that, you know, like listen to the Spirit of God, pray as led, but I think, I think some low-hanging fruit would be pray for our leaders. We're called to do that in Scripture. Whether it's somebody you voted for or you like or dislike, Scripture does not give us any qualifiers. So we're yeah. to pray regularly for our leaders. So uh, Mayor Wheeler and on and on and on. You know, go through and pray over our city council and our police chief. And, you know, if you leave, live in one of the outlying communities, your mayor, your leaders— um, our, our House of Representatives on, on a national level, our senators, our governor, whether you like them or not, pray for them. They've got really hard jobs. No one can say any different than that. Yeah, it's really, yeah. really hard right now. Yeah. And so uh, pray for wisdom, pray for courage, pray for humility. Those are the three things when people ask, how can I pray for you? I always say wisdom, courage, and humility. And um, pray that for pastors in the city. I mean, I don't mean to say this just to kind of talk about myself in this regard, but it's been rough for everybody the last two years. But study after study shows how difficult it's been on pastors. It's been really, really difficult. Yeah. And so the ones still hanging in there, which thank God, because there's no plan B. We need the church. We need healthy pastors. Pray for them as they interact in the city as you drive through situations that make you uncomfortable and you see our unhoused neighbors, uh, you see maybe behavior that leaves you uncomfortable, uh, driving patterns that leave you uncomfortable, uh, whatever it may be, use that as a catalyst for prayer. You know, we, we kind of talked to our, our girls on occasion about telling the better story. We'll always jump to the worst story. I remember this, yeah. But like, what, what's their story? Like, that can't be their chosen path. They didn't, they didn't grow up thinking, man, I, I wish I could do this or live here probably. I'm guessing not. I don't mean that in a judgmental way. What, what happened? What's going on there? And approaching it with mercy and a big heart and living into how do we get to a point where we're helping our city and the inhabitants of our city, whoever they are, flourish, because if they flourish, we'll flourish. So I think, but as led, just be quiet before the Lord, listen and pray for your city. I think that that should be part of our regular rhythm. I, uh, you reminded me a little bit back um, in talking about Portland and, and the grand scheme of how we interact here. And it reminded me of a sermon a long time ago that I heard from some guy in Seattle. I don't even know right now. And uh, he made this really good point to me that stuck with me for a long time. And it was living in the tension, not trying to escape it and get out of it, but rather living in it because that's where Christ is at. Like in those moments, that's, that's where it's at. Um, and that's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think of the, the parable of the sheep and the goats and where, where Jesus said that he could see his followers, right? It, it's in caring for the most vulnerable in their need. Um, he literally says, that's when you cared for me. And so when we see things go, go south and be a struggle fest, um, it's really a clarion call for followers of Jesus to enter the game. There's Jesus. Like, there he is. Like, how do we enter into that space and make a difference? Yeah. In your sermon, you mentioned uh, that without Christianity, uh, rights of women, children, and slaves would not have been challenged uh, if it had not been for uh, a lived-out gospel by the followers of Jesus. Um, and I know we're diving that even—we're going further into that one further down the road in the sermon series, so I don't want to touch on that too much, but— uh, are there any other areas of history that you can touch on uh, that have been challenged because of the work of Christians? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. These are multiple sermons, but I think one that I didn't mention Sunday that I wish I would have, so this could almost go back to the cutting room floor, just (laughs) ran out of time, (laughs) Um, but it is the arts. And because Christians have become pretty poor at the arts in our generation, you know, Christian artists out there, rise up, we're with you, you know, being married an artist, but it's it's at a pretty low ebb right now. And uh, uh, But traditionally and historically, that has not been the case. Anybody who studies the history of art or music or, you know, I, I, I would argue compellingly that, that uh, some of our world's greatest musicians, greatest painters, greatest sculptors, greatest works of art, greatest books have been written to followers of Jesus. Um, and so, again, a world without Christianity would wipe all that away, and we wouldn't have our cathedrals, and we wouldn't have the Sistine Chapel, and we wouldn't have, you know, Michelangelo's David, and, and on and on and on, you know, uh, even those of us who want to see the Vincent Van Gogh deal here in Portland, right? I mean, faith played a heavy role in, in Van Gogh's life, um, and so on and on and on. So I think I think the the arts... Um, the way of Jesus and faith and hope and even things like sacrificial love and the cross and these deep subterranean things that the gospel evokes in us have created some of the greatest works of art. I mean, think of Mozart and Bach, you know, I mean, yeah. almost always in their music, to the glory of God. Um, and uh, that's some of the most beautiful music that's ever been made and ever will be made. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's one. I think the other one... Um, could be a little bit of a rabbit trail, so you'll have to grab me if I go too far <laughs> down it. But, um, and, and I'm almost hesitant to mention it because it's a Pandora's box as well, but um, how our government is set up and how we govern. Um, I've been reading a number of different things. It's All fascinating. Right, so now we're going to stop. And <laughs> I was a poli-sci major, so I think this stuff fascinates us. And and um, so let me see if I can thread it as, as cleanly as I can. But uh, there there's there was a book by Robert McKenzie. He's a historian, I think, at Wheaton College called We the Fallen. Um, some editorials in the New York Times by David Brooks. So relax everybody with the New York Times. David Brooks is conservative, <laughs> you know, and uh, and then David French is, a, he's a Christian, but he's a well-known political commentator. I really appreciate a lot of what he has to say. They've all been talking a lot about two aspects that uh, Christianity and the way of Jesus has infused into the way we govern that they're concerned about as we, mm. as we kind of step away from faith as a society. And one is the idea of original sin, or just that sin exists, right? That, they're, that, that, that it's wrong. Brooks wrote compelling about this in a, in a recent editorial in the New York Times. Um, McKinsey's book, We the Fallen, is all about that. And it's fascinating. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. But he says the, the founding fathers, while they were not all Christ followers, they just weren't. We know the story. Yeah. Many of them yeah. were. Um, many of them were theists or, or deists, but some of them weren't. Some of them were atheists. Nonetheless, they were really smart. They really were. And, yeah. and they designed a government system around the, the assumed reality of sin in people's lives. <laughs> that we know that we need checks and balances is a classic sense for people yeah. Who, who, yeah. who've gone through, you know, basic political theory stuff. They designed, I think, a pretty effective government predicated on the fact that it's going to go south in the human heart. Like, yeah. right? That yeah. we're, we, you know, so that's, that's one aspect that you see more and more, and this would probably be more from my brothers and sisters to the left, that of like really mitigating sin. Like, ah, I don't know, are we that bad? We're actually innately good. 
all these writers are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like none of history would attest to that. Yeah, that we're, yeah. That we're innately yeah. good. Or you hear it like, now I'm all pro-democracy, but kind of like all we need to do is just get more and more people voting. They'll always vote right. They'll always vote for a good thing. You know, like, yeah, no, no history does not go that people way. are selfish and yeah. they vote for their own. Interest. So yeah. like, re, like that's something that faith and particularly Christianity brings to the game that is, that is really, really important. And so, uh, I, I think that that's, that's an interesting aspect that, that, that gets mitigated. The other side of it would be, um, basic character. Um, David Brooks wrote a book called the road to character and you can go beyond Christianity for this, but probably not beyond religion. Although, again, I'm not saying atheists don't have character. It's like, what's it built upon? Yeah. And so uh, just character development is huge. And, and so um, David French in his article that came out this past Sunday, really excellent. But he essentially is quoting John Adams and communication with the, with the, the founding fathers, like letters back and forth oh, that wow. are talking about this very thing. And they're like this government will never be able to hold in check the avarice of the human heart. And like, it just won't. They it just won't accepted that work. from the get-go. So there's like the only way this thing we created will work is if outside of that structure, there's morality and good character development. And, and the framework that we were talking about earlier. Correct. Yeah. And so when and that's what Holland's getting back to, to bring it full circle. And you know, Holland would say all, all that comes from Judeo- Christian principles. And so if you try to say, we really like this, but we're going to try to do this without Jesus and Christians, you cut off the branch you're trying to sit on and it all goes up in smoke, which is, you could argue that's what we're seeing. We're depending on this well-designed government, but more and more acting like sin doesn't exist and we don't need to do robust character development. Well, how's that going? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I don't, I, I don't mean, think I don't, anybody's I don't happy. think it's going good. So I think, you know, whether you like Jesus or Christianity or not, like it's hard to not read Holland's book is long. It's like 580 pages. It's so compelling. He's a world-class historian. It's hard to get through it and be like, oh my gosh, like Christianity brings a ton to the party. And you see more and more atheists even saying that. Like, yeah, I don't believe it, but man, they bring really good things. Um, so I, I think that that's a, that's a whole nother thing that the way of Jesus, it, it challenges how we design our government and how we function as a society. And as we step away from those things, we see small cracks that turn into huge crevices that turn into chasms if we don't address them. Uh, as we're as we're coming up here on just the end, end on John, politics, just like get it all fired up. Lo- and just, yeah, I love it. I love it. Uh, I think that'll be great. Um, John, as we as we come to an end, do you have anything else that's coming to mind that you're like, yeah, I want to I want to say something to that extent? Coming back to that integrity thing, walk the talk, right? Yeah. Especially if you're older, yeah. if you're a parent or you're a grandparent, um, the younger generation, which is leaving the church at high rates, at yep. least in the United States, not all over the world. We'll talk about this that this Sunday, but in the United States, um, primarily they're doing it because they don't see that. They don't see, God bless them, their parents and grandparents walking the talk. And I mentioned a few yep. of those things. Sunday, I know I got emotional, but I'll just close with that. Walk the talk. Don't raise your kids to say, hey, character matters and morality matters. And they look and see you following somebody that they're, they're not a person of character. They see that and they're like, what in the world? Yeah, I've uh, had to learn to apologize to my kids. Yes. That was like oh. one of those things. And oh, Josh, that's yeah. such a good word. And I, 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 I think the two most powerful words for parents or really for humans, uh, the three most powerful words are I love you, right? But the two <laughs> most are I'm sorry. Really? Yeah. And we've really lost the ability to say that. And I couldn't commend that more. Parents are going to mess up grandparents. 
But it's it's time to say I'm sorry to a lot of these folks and be like, don't don't do what I did. But now follow me as I redouble down on Jesus. But walk the talk. Give people a reason to look at the way you live your life through the power of the Holy Spirit, by God's grace. And people say, that's good and beautiful and true. Tell me more. Where do you go to church and what's going on? Like, I may not agree with you, but I like you and and all these kind of things, right? Which is what our hope is. So that's what I would kind of close with, a challenge from this message. Um, And don't take my word for it. Come and look yourself. That's a lot of this series. We've given numerous resources and, you know, in the resource page, which I think is available on the website underneath the sermon, like I, I gave some interviews, some things to watch. If you're not a book reader, I tried to think through that. Dig into some of those things for yourself and journey with us. Thanks for listening to New Hope's Cutting Room Floor Podcast. And don't forget to follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Check out newhopepdx.org to get to know us more.